It was now Christmas Eve. There was joy in the air. For in just a few hours, Santa Claus would be there. And the gifts would be left, and the stockings all filled, and the anticipation, well, it started to build. Christmas morning. That's 28,800 seconds. Okay, and sleep. Waffle one, this is Waffle two. Are you there? I read you loud and clear, Waffle two. This is Grouper, by the way. Yeah, I got that. Oh, I just wanted to wish you good luck with Santa Claus. Thanks. Talk tomorrow. Well, I love that clip from Dr. Seuss's The Grinch. That's the newest version of it. And I love it because of the anticipation of the kids. Uh, To me, that's one of the most fun things about this time of year is those elementary-aged kids and maybe even some of our high schoolers still where there's just such an anticipation for Christmas Day. You know, if you think about it, anticipation really is when you don't know for sure what the future holds but you believe that it's good. Isn't that what anticipation is? And what's so interesting is that as we get older and we go through life, we go through hard times and we start to believe that the future's not always good from our experiences. And anticipation, the other side of the same coin, is what we call dread. Dread is when you don't know what the future holds, but you're pretty sure it's bad. Anticipation is when you don't know what the future holds, but you're pretty sure it's good. I'd like to move you today, wherever there is some dread in your life or a lack of joy, I'd like to move you to a state of anticipation, of eager excitement. Here's the question I want to ask you today. If you could have God do one thing in your lifetime, one thing, what would it be? I mean, I want you to imagine that God actually walks out on this stage and he sets up a metal desk. He says, everybody line up. And one by one, we all wait in line. We have our turn. And when you have your moment with God, he's got a notepad and a pen. And he's like, you just tell me the one thing. I I know there's 50 of them, but pick that one top thing. That if this one thing could happen in your life, what would it be? I wonder what's the answer to that question. What would you pick? I know it's changed for me through different times in my life. If you had asked me when I was 12, I know exactly what my answer would have been. A Porsche 911 Carrera. (laughs) God, give me that one thing and I will be happy. I will be good to go. Nothing wrong with a Porsche 911 Carrera. It's a great thing. Typically, as we get older, we realize that material things, while not bad, don't have the power to give us the deeper fulfillment we seek. I would guess that most of you, that one thing has to do with someone you love. And maybe it's someone you love who the relationship has been estranged or broken and you would say, God, if you could restore that relationship. Maybe it's someone you love who's very far from God and they're uh, enslaved in some kind of darkness or addiction and you say, God, if there was one thing, it would be that that person would have an encounter with you and be set free. Maybe your one thing has to do with finding your purpose, finding your spouse, finding your dream. Today's a day where we dust off some of these dreams that we've had, these deep desires that we've had, that if we were childlike, we would anticipate how it could happen, but because we're grown-ups and we've seen heartbreak in life, we're dreading that it will probably never happen. 
I want you to identify that thing and today we're going to breathe some life. We're going to breathe some hope back into that dream. If it's a person, you might write down their name or just picture their face because as God speaks to us today from his word, he's going to restore hope around that situation or that person, no matter how impossible that might seem. We're all looking for a moment, if we're really anticipating, when what seems impossible finally happens. So really we're asking this, how do you experience that moment? When your impossible dream, the child who won't talk to you, calls you. The relationship that could never be repaired somehow is. The person who's so far from God returns to God, or even you get a Porsche 911 Carrera. How do you experience that moment when your impossible dream becomes a reality? Anyone else want to know the answer to that question? I sure do. So walk with me through a part of the Christmas story that maybe you've never heard before. It's about two people who each had a lifelong dream. And for year after year, in fact, decade after decade, it looked like their dream was never going to happen. And if they're like you and me, their anticipation somewhere in there must have turned to dread. That you know what, I built my whole life around thinking God would do this thing and it hasn't happened. But we're going to see in their life this inspirational reality. That no matter how many years or decades of disappointment you've lived in, it's never too late with God. Let's pick up here in Luke chapter 2. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Now, if you want to picture in your mind, Simeon is an old dude. He's got wrinkled, grizzled skin. And we know exactly when that time is because this is exactly 30 days after Jesus was born. We know that because this was a Jewish custom for parents to bring their child to the temple 30 days after they were born. So Jesus, as a baby, being carried by his mom, Mary, is going to meet this guy, Simeon. Simeon was righteous. He was devout. That is, he continued to seek God's word and God's ways in his life. And as a result of that, he was eagerly waiting. That's anticipation, isn't it? Simeon was eagerly waiting for the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Well, we now know it's Jesus. And that word Messiah is so important. That's where we get our word, the Christ. That's why we call Jesus the Christ. It means Messiah. What that means is that Jesus is more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a moral example. He's more than a prophet. Messiah means that he's almighty God. The master engineer who created galaxies and solar systems and your DNA and your heartbeat and your personality and your fingerprint, the creator who made you, wanted to be reconnected to you. And so he chose to humble himself and become a human, to walk our planet, to cry our tears, to feel our pain, to feel our emotional rejection. And that's what Messiah is. It's almighty God in the human form Come to earth to build a bridge, a gateway, a path back to God for anyone who believes. Well, Simeon had spent his whole life dreaming and praying and reading these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. And somewhere in his life, he had said, God, if there's just one thing I could have in my life, I want to see the Messiah myself. Just give me that one thing before I die. 
He was eagerly awaiting the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah would rescue Israel. Just like very likely, your one thing you would ask God for, it likely has to do with a person. Maybe you haven't found your spouse and you're like, it's that person, God, bring that person. Or maybe it's someone you love and they need rescue. The Messiah is the one who has the power to reach them. And this is why for Simeon, this is such an emotional thing that he's built his whole life around is he knows the Messiah not only will give him eternal life, but will bring rescue to the people who he loves. Well, the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon and had revealed this to him, that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. In other words, as Simeon read the word of God and prayed, there was a time where the Holy Spirit whispered into his ear, you won't die without seeing the Messiah. And that's a promise that he was holding on to as he aged. Well, on this day, the Spirit led him to the temple so that when Mary and Joseph came in to present their baby to the Lord, kind of a Jewish baby dedication, Simeon is there. Simeon was there and he took the child in his arms and he praised God saying this, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. Now, if you're young, that might sound like a really weird thing to say when you're excited. But I've learned that as people get older and as the body ages and you start to realize this body's going to wear out and especially as your friends start to pass away into the next life, it's not uncommon for people to say there's just one or two more things and after that I'm ready to go. And apparently Simeon was old enough that this is where he's at. He says, wow God, the, the one thing, the one thing that I wanted to happen before I die has happened. I've seen the Messiah just like you promised. I've seen your salvation. In other words, this baby is going to bring eternal life to me and to all who believe. And this is what you've prepared, not only for the people of Israel who I care about so much, but for all people. In this moment, Simeon sees something that other people don't see in a little 30-day-old baby. I mean, think about it. A 30-day-old baby doesn't have bladder control yet, right? Right? That's true. It's okay to laugh at things in the Bible that are funny. God has a sense of humor. Think about this. This is the Messiah of the world. That's how much God humbled himself, stooped down to a position that was so far below him so he could reach you. And Simeon has the faith to see that this little baby is in fact the savior of the world. He continues to kind of prophesy and he says that he's a light to reveal God to the nations. Simeon would not see in his lifetime that 2,000 years later, Jesus would have followers in every nation of the world, but he believed by faith. This is God's light to the nations. This is the glory of our people, Israel. Well, the story continues with another person who's along in years, who's been seeking God at the temple, who's been living in difficulty, and her name is Anna. In verse 36, she makes her way over to Simeon and Mary and Joseph. And Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of this religious group among the Israelites, and she was very old. In fact, here's what's interesting about Anna. Her husband had died when they had just been married for seven years. Now, we know from history that most people at this time got married when they were teenagers, and so Anna probably became a widow when she was 21 or 23 years old. And now look at the next verse. It says this. 
Then Anna lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple but stayed there day and night worshiping God with fasting and prayer. In other words, this dear woman Anna has been a widow for 60 years. When she was in her 20s, the love of her life passes away and in that pain, instead of turning away from God, she turns toward God and she says, God, I'm gonna worship you. You're not the author of evil. You're not the author of pain, but I believe you're good. I believe you're for me. I'm gonna continue to seek you in my pain. And for 60 years, she continues to say, God, I know someday you're gonna bring your Messiah. And even though life has been dreadful for me, I'm not gonna live in a state of dread about the future. I'm gonna live in a state of anticipation because God, I know that you keep your promises. Well, Anna came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and because she's been anticipating, when she sees this baby and she sees Simeon, she starts to praise God. And then we're told that she starts to talk about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly. Second time we've seen that phrase, anticipation, childlike anticipation for God to rescue. My prayer for you today is to restore that anticipation that you can eagerly expect God to work. How do you do that? Well, it's a choice. Anna and Simeon both model this for us. We can do it today. They faithfully expected God to work even when it seemed impossible. I mean, imagine Anna at age 30. She's now been a widow for just, you know, five or seven years, whatever it was, and her friends are saying, you should, you know, you need to get out there. Why are you worshiping God? Why are you turning to God with your pain? Go make something of your life. Go do this, go do that. And she, day after day, keeps faithfully expecting God will work even though it looks impossible. With this in mind, I, I want to encourage you to revisit what's that one thing that you'd want God to do in your lifetime? Who's that one person you'd want him to bring to salvation or that one relationship you'd want him to restore? Or that one dream that he's put on your heart? You know what it is for me when I kneel at my bed at night? It's believing God, you're gonna use our church to raise a generation that defies the trends and raise up a generation that follows you and outdoes all that we do for the kingdom. And God, you're gonna use our church, you're gonna use our movement to reach people all around the world and all around the country and all around Indianapolis. And every night I kneel at my bed and I pray that. And you know what? There's days when it seems impossible. There's days when it feels like it's not happening on my timeline or as big as we'd like, but we faithfully expect we make that choice. I wanna share with you, if you'd like to see God do the impossible for the dream that's on your heart, two truths that you can take today and two choices that you can make today. Here's truth number one. When it hasn't happened, God is doing something bigger than you expected. This isn't normally how we think. If we're honest, when we've got a dream and we pray about it and we go for it and it hasn't happened, we tend to think, well, God must not be listening. God must not care. God must not be hearing me. Possibly even God's against me. 
And Simeon and Anna, they both could have felt that day after day, month after month, year after year, but somehow they had the faith to see that even though it wasn't happening on their timeline, God was doing something bigger. And here's what I mean. Most of the people who were looking for Messiah at that time, they were expecting the Messiah to show up like Alexander the Great or like Nero, a military leader, a king ruler with the sun glinting off the armor and a giant army of horses and chariots. This is what people pictured for the Messiah. Why? Well, because the Old Testament prophets said he'll rule over the nations, he'll bring justice, he'll set up a new kingdom. So it wasn't unfounded. They just took it very literally. And so Simeon lives at a time where everyone's expecting the Messiah to be this military leader and he keeps praying for the Messiah day after day. Why do they want a military leader? Because they're being oppressed by Roman rule. They're looking for rescue because the Romans are taking their land. The Romans are taking their freedom. The Romans are taking their children sometimes as slaves. And so they're saying, bring us a Messiah who will deliver us from Rome. And then Simeon's in the temple and in comes this little 30-day-old baby. And God says, that's the Messiah. I wonder, is God working in ways that seem too small in your life? Is he working in smaller ways than you expected? Is he not doing the big things that you've asked for or imagined? Jesus not being the powerful chariot riding army leader who was expected, that seemed a lot smaller in the moment, didn't it? But now here we are 2,000 years later. How many people are worshiping Nero or Alexander the Great or any great military kingdom ruler from 2,000 years ago? No one's worshiping those people. But one out of three people in the world today is worshiping Jesus as God, according to the Pew Research Center. By empirical, non-Christian measures, Jesus has more buildings dedicated to him than anyone else in history, buildings like this one. Jesus has more nations who've modeled their constitutions after him than anyone else in history. He has more people named after him and his followers than anyone else in history. He's the only person who has the whole global calendar based on him, that year zero is based on his birth. He's the only person in history that the global seven-day work week, almost everyone gets Sunday off because that's the day he rose from the dead. His impact is way bigger than a Nero or an Alexander the Great. But in the moment, what's bigger? A little crying, helpless baby? Or a powerful ruler with 200,000 person army? And the principle is this, when it seems like God's not doing the big thing you're looking for, faith says, if it hasn't happened yet, then I choose to believe God's doing something bigger than what I expected. There's a second truth. When that thing that you're praying for and hoping for hasn't happened yet, God's doing something better than you expected. Most of Simeon's neighbors, they wanted a Messiah for them and their family and their nation, and they didn't really care about the rest of the world very much. And that's most of us, if we're honest, right? That's human nature. Simeon, as a follower of God, reading the word of God, filled with the spirit of God, realized that the heart of God 
is not only for one nation, but for all nations and for all people. And that God's plan for a Messiah wasn't just a temporary military ruler in one little region of the world that would someday pass away as a ruler and a temporary kingdom, but God was going to bring a kingdom that would go on and on and would ultimately be eternal and would be for not just one nation, but for all people. God's plan was way better. But it took faith to see that. And it takes faith to believe that when what you're praying for, you say, I know what I'm praying for is something that fits God's character, his nature. He wants that restoration of that relationship. He wants this dream for his kingdom. I know that, but it's not happening. Guess what? He's going to do it in a way that's bigger and in a way that's better. When my son Jack was about four years old, we used to play Legos all the time. And you know, sometimes we'd get a new Lego set and there'd be the instructions, but My favorite times are when we would freestyle, you know? We'd just dump the Legos out on the ground and we'd just go for it and use our imaginations. And Jack was at an age where he loved building cars and he loved building steam locomotives. And so we're working together on this steam locomotive and there was this moment I'll never forget. It's been six years now where the Legos are all laying out there and Jack's kind of working on something and I'm working on something. I've got a vision in my mind of this big steam locomotive. He's got a four-year-old vision in his mind and I grab a Lego piece and he must have had his eye on that piece because here's what he said to me. Dad, you're ruining my plan. (laughs) He's kind of like, I was going to use that piece. And I remember because of some things I was going through in my life at the time, having this moment of insight and realizing, aren't we all just big kids? And we're going about our careers and our relationships and our achievements and our possessions and we're piecing together these little Lego kingdoms. And the older we get, the more sweat and tears and agony and heartbreak we're putting into these little Lego kingdoms that are little to God, but they're the biggest and the best that we can do. And you live long enough and you'll have a moment where you've got your eye on a piece and you know exactly how it's going to fit and you reach for it and it seems like God snatches it away. And you say, God, I, you're ruining my plan. God, why are you doing this? Anna had to feel that way when after seven years of marriage, just seven years, her husband passes away. Simeon had to feel like that as his body's aging and aching and he's like, I would rather just go to heaven, but God, you said I'd see the Messiah and he's just clinging on by faith. You know, the the core heart of Jesus' message is that God is a good father. And the core heart of Satan's message is that you can't trust God. He's a little bit shady. and You need to control the Lego pieces yourself. I mean, that's the summary of everything from Genesis to Revelation. There's a lot of stories, there's a lot of characters, but it all comes down to this. Do you believe that God is good and for you? And if we're honest, we've all had dads and other authority figures in our lives who weren't good, who weren't for us. So very natural when we assume, maybe I can't trust God. 
But somehow Simeon and Anna, they modeled this faith that we can have, and this is how you turn dread into anticipation. This is how you recover your joy about the future of saying, God, if that Lego wasn't there, then you must have a bigger plan. Because my son Jack, he's pretty good at Legos, and now that he's 10, he could probably outdo me in building a locomotive. But when he was four, believe it or not, I could build a little bit better locomotive at that time. And in the same way, God sees things that you don't see. And Simeon had this faith that, well, if God says this little baby without bladder control is the Messiah who will save the nations, and everyone around me is looking for a military ruler on a chariot, I'll believe God, even if it looks smaller, even if it's not the way I would do it, God's bigger, and I can trust him. You can trust him too. Sometimes those Legos get snatched away by the enemy, our spiritual enemy, Satan. Sometimes those Legos get snatched away by evil people who wrong us or abuse us or lie to us. But we have this promise in Scripture that God works all things together for good. And while he's not the author of the pain in your life, if you'll continue to surrender to his plan, he will work even the pain in your life to good. He'll bring good from it. Let's keep moving through what we're learning today. We've learned two truths, and now I want to share with you two choices. The first choice is this, that we cling daily to God's promises. Simeon and Anna, they both modeled this. I mean, for Anna, I did the math, 21,900 days that she was a widow going to the temple of God trusting that God was going to bring good from the broken things in her life. Daily, she clung. What does that mean? She grasped to it. Just like if you were shipwrecked in the middle of the ocean and it's a storm and it's cold and you've got a life preserver and there's nothing else around that you can see, you'd you'd cling to that thing. You'd grasp onto that thing and God gives you promises. The desire of your heart, if you're a follower of Jesus and that desire of heart is in line with his character, You want that person to come to know Christ. You want that relationship to be restored. He gives you promises in his word, just like he gave Simeon a promise. And you can cling to that promise. One day at a time, you just keep keep holding on to that promise. Promises like, I know the plans I have for you. In Jeremiah 29, God says, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Promises like Romans 8, where God says, I will work all things together for your good, even the bad things, and you just cling to that promise. You're praying for a loved one who needs a God encounter and they seem so opposed to God and they hate anything about Jesus or Christians and they're just so opposed it seems impossible. You cling to the promise in 1 Timothy 2, verse four, where God says that he desires for all people to come to salvation. And you just pray that promise, you say, God, I couldn't change the heart of this person, I can't reach them, but you said, that you desire for all people to come to salvation. I'm claiming that promise. I'm clinging to that promise. And Simeon and Anna, they are overlooked heroes in the Christmas story because day after day, with the hands of faith, they grabbed onto the promises of God. They continued to worship God. That is to see him as bigger, big enough to handle the Legos that we wish we could have controlled. And praying, that is daily saying, God, will you do this? Will you do this one thing I want to see happen in my life? 
recently came across a great picture of believing when it looks impossible. I was reading this book called Seabiscuit. It's a great book. It's a true story of a racehorse. And like every book that has been made into a movie, I'm an author, so I'm totally biased. The book is always better. The book is way better. But let me tell you a little bit about Seabiscuit. He was a kind of a scrawny horse. He was born during the Great Depression, a lot of poverty, a lot of depression in the United States. And this little horse who was unwanted ends up becoming a really good racehorse has a pretty great career and actually races longer than most horses. Most racehorses retire at age four as kind of an old racehorse. Well, he keeps racing as he's five, he's going on six, and then he has this catastrophic injury. Uh, ripped all the ligaments in his, what would be his knee for the horse. And so the horse, all the veterinarians say, this horse is too old to race anyway. And even a young horse could never recover from that kind of injury. This horse is done. And the same was true of the jockey, a guy named Red Pollard. These jockeys, they were these scrawny, wiry, skinny little scrappers. I mean, these guys were fighting for their life and existence. And Red Pollard, he had taken a ride on a different horse, a really excited horse that was out of control. It ran him into a barn. He ended up breaking bones all over one side of his body. His leg was broken so bad, the doctor's all different doctors around the country kept re-breaking it, trying to get it to heal properly. And eventually they said, you're, you're never really going to walk again, and you're definitely never going to race a horse again. And so the horse, too old and too broken, and the jockey, too damaged and too broken, both get retired to some ranch in California. But as they're there, they have this daily hope. Red Pollard clings to this impossible thought that maybe Seabiscuit could heal. Maybe he could one, run one more race. Maybe I could heal. And I want to show you a clip that shows this true part of the story. And as you watch it, I want you to think about that thing that just seems impossible, that today you're dusting it off and you're saying, God, maybe you actually could do this. Let's watch this and think about the faith that shows itself in action. Go ahead and have a look. See, first, you got to get a little flexibility. Yeah. Then you can put weight on it. Then once you start to put weight on it, the whole leg gets stronger. I know. I know. I'm in a hurry too, Pops. But you know what Hadrian said about Rome? Brick by brick, my citizens. Brick by brick. See, they're Arabians, so they don't need to drink. These horses can go five or six days without a drop of water, like a camel. Oh, well, I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm just saying that's what they do. Oh, good idea.
I don't know, Rhea. We're just gonna walk in a circle. You think the leg will hold you? Horse weighs 1,200 pounds, Sam. I'm an afterthought. No, I mean your leg. Here comes Seabiscuit, charging down the lane, picking off competition one by one. He's third, now second, now first. And it's Seabiscuit at the wire to win the Santa Anita Handicap with Red Pollard aboard. Yes! Faith is believing that when you're too old, too injured, that it's just impossible. Faith is saying, I'm just going to take that next step anyway. And I love that true story of Seabiscuit because really the entire nation at that time put their faith that this seven-year-old horse that was way too old and too broken could somehow heal. And here's the thing, if a nation and if millions of people could put their faith in a horse like that, then could we not have a little more faith in the God who parted the Red Sea? Could we not have a little more faith in the God who raises the dead? Could we not have a little more faith in the God who opens the eyes of the blind and on the days where we think, you know, God, that thing that I'm praying for is just so impossible. We remember, you know what? He opened my eyes when I was blind. He brought me back. Faith is an anticipation. It says, I don't know everything about the future, but I know who holds the future. And if it's not going the way I think, I'm just going to keep being faithful because his plan must be bigger. His plan must be better. And on the days when it seems impossible, we step forward one step at a time and we cling to promises like these. Promises like Hebrews 13 where it says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never fail you, God says. I will never abandon you. When you pass through the waters and it seems impossible, I'll be with you. Follower of Jesus, God's hand is on you. His Holy Spirit is in you. His people were with you. His word is for you. And he says, I know the plans I have for you. 
Jeremiah 29. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You can anticipate with God. He promises that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So today, release your expectations of the specific way God needs to work during your short life and regain, revive your anticipation of how God is doing something bigger and better as you stay faithful to him. There's a second choice that helps us do that and it's this, don't give up just because God hasn't worked as quickly as you expected. Don't give up. I wonder how many things have you given up on spiritually? How many things have you stopped praying about? Oh, that loved one, they're never gonna turn to Christ or that marriage, it's just beyond healing. Our expectation is that God can do anything. And if he hasn't done it yet, he's doing it in a different way, in a bigger way. In my life, to grow in this kind of faith, I've learned a lot from a great Christian hero named George Mueller. Here's a picture of one biography of George Mueller. If you're like, this is an area I want to grow in, I'd encourage you to read about George Mueller. He lived uh, before our modern conveniences, the 1800s. And George Mueller, as he followed Jesus, he felt called to start an orphanage, actually a whole bunch of orphanages. It was a major problem at the time, a whole bunch of kids who were just thrown out on the streets, didn't have families. And so Mueller started these orphanages, but very often they would run out of food. They have all sorts of problems. He, he lived a day where, a life where every day he was saying, God, give us our daily bread. And there's all sorts of great true stories around George Mueller of things like there's no food for the orphans and a wagon full of milk breaks down in front of the orphanage and the drivers, this is before refrigeration, the driver's like, hey, you guys want this milk? Sure, answer to prayer. Mueller's life is full of stories like that, but the one I wanna share with you is when Mueller started praying in November of 1844, there were five people on his heart who didn't know Christ. And his prayer was essentially, God, if you could do one thing in my life, I wanna see these five people come to know you. Well, after 18 months, the first one out of the five trusted in Christ and was transformed. And then it took another six years, and Mueller writes in his journal that he was praying every day. No matter if he was traveling, no matter what was going on with the orphanages, every day he would kneel and pray for the next four. And after six years, the second one trusts in Christ. Then it takes another 30 years after 36 years of praying, person number three out of the five trusts in Christ. I wonder, have you ever prayed about something for 36 years? Or if you're not that old yet, would you say, hey, I'm gonna trust in God in a way that says, if I have to pray for something every day for 36 years, I'm gonna keep believing. Well, the story continues. In 1897, George Mueller went home to heaven and when he went home to heaven, three of those five had believed in Christ, but two of them had not. And the story continues a true documented story that it was in the years after George Mueller's homecoming that those other two who had been childhood friends of his, they did place their faith in Christ. Five for five. 
didn't happen on George Mueller's timeline, didn't all even happen within his lifetime, but it did all happen. And I want to encourage you today to not give up on praying for the people you love and the dreams that God has put on your heart. I'll give you an example in our lifetime. This is a guy named Pastor Dan Rydberg. For a long time, he wasn't a pastor. Spent most of his adult life as a functioning alcoholic. He'd been raised Catholic. He had kind of an idea of God, but thought God hated him and didn't really believe in a personal God. In his 50s, after years of functioning as an alcoholic, Dan got invited to an event at a church a lot like this. He went back two or three times, and the fourth time he finally realized, Jesus is God, and he loves me, and he wants to help me. Dan placed his faith in Jesus. Was he freed from alcoholism the next morning? No. In his case, it took about three years. But around year three, very much like Simeon heard, you'll see the Messiah before you die, he heard, you're never to drink alcohol again, and he hasn't drank alcohol since. Well, Dan then started studying the Word of God, became a pastor, and when I left journalism 10 years ago, my little church of 40 people in Arizona, when we got up to about 150 people, I hired Dan as our, the first pastor I ever hired. He's one of the most amazing, just gentle, kind, loving, spirit-filled people you'll ever meet. The reason I tell you Dan's story is that for 30 years, his brother prayed for him. In fact, for many of those years, his brother and his brother's kids, at bedtime, they would all pray for Uncle Dan, praying that God would bring him to salvation, free him from his alcohol addiction. And God did that. God did that in our lifetime. I can't tell you how many new believers we baptize here, or we pray with them, and then as they start to grow, we learn they have an aunt in Minnesota, or they have a grandma in Arizona, they have some relative somewhere around the country who never stopped praying for them when it looked impossible. They kept clinging to the promises of God. And I want to encourage you today to keep praying for the dreams that God has put on your heart and let's keep being part of the dreams that God is fulfilling. I love it when we have a new believer and then we found out, wow, God used us to answer 36 years of prayer from some grandma on the other side of the country. And as we move into our Christmas Eve services next week, I wanna encourage you, keep praying for those people around the country who you love. Pray that God will bring the right people into their life. And as you pray, have the anticipation that God's gonna use us right here in Indiana to reach people that other people are praying for. And so these Christmas Eve invites that we've, passed out today and you can grab more of them in the lobby. If you're watching online, you can use an online invite and share it on social media. These Christmas Eve invites, you can make a plate of cookies and you can take them to a neighbor. You can give them to a coworker. These Christmas Eve invites are a chance for us to express our faith and say, God, you're going to use us to answer the prayers of other people. And as we keep praying with the faith of Simeon and Anna, you're going to do bigger and better things with the burdens that are on our hearts. And so God, instead of having dread about the future, we have great anticipation because we know you hold the future and we know that you're good. I'd love to pray that for you right now. Father, across this room, I just pray 
that you'd reach into our hearts and the places where we doubt if you're good, where we doubt if we can trust you. We just pray that you would heal those places today. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister in this room and everyone watching online that today you would plant into our hearts the faith of Simeon and the faith of Anna. It says, even when it looks like you're not working, God, even when it seems impossible, God, I continue to choose to believe. I eagerly expect what you're going to do. And when it doesn't go my way, I'm going to choose to believe you must have a better way. You must have a bigger way. Maybe it's beyond my lifetime. Maybe it's beyond what my mind can comprehend, but I choose to trust you as almighty God. And so, Lord, today we bring you our once-in-a-lifetime dreams. Every person, every relationship, every accomplishment. We bring you our dreams as a church to raise the strongest generation, to reach more people than we ever thought possible. God, only you could do that. We bring you every son and daughter and grandchild. We bring you every person we love who needs you so much. God, you desire that all people will come to salvation. We claim your promises one day at a time. Lord, use us this Christmas Eve to be the answer to thousands of prayers around this country that our neighbors in Brownsburg and Avon and Plainsfield, our neighbors in Zionsville and Indianapolis and all around this region, that they would get an invite at their workstation or on their front door or as we hand it to them. And Lord, that it would be just one push toward you that you use to change a family to change a destiny, to change a legacy. We love you. We express faith in you today. And for that, we have joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.